the road belongs savvy. That Melanesians saw in the first white man an ancestor back from the dead was the digest of what was originally a more eclectic and staticky perception of a possible monster, ghoul, or ghost. The resetting of first contact on the Melanesian equation between white men and their own ancestral dead merited a primal scene, one that the Europeans, too, could recognize. Andrew Latas tells the scene's story through the internal recount of legend. In 1991, an old man, Bowl, told me how one of his classificatory fathers had been down on the coast and saw, as a reflection in water, the first white man to come into the Kutliai area. Startled by this image, Bowl's father turned to look behind him, and there he saw a German called Master Paris. Seeing the first white man as a reflection in water was significant because Tambaran, Masalai, and the souls of the dead often reside in water. In the Kaliai area, the word for soul, ano, is the same word for reflection. This means that from their earliest memories, people saw whites as emerging from the reflective space of water, which in traditional culture is inhabited by the dead and Masalai. Through the many iterations of white men arriving to boss the Melanesians around, the cargo cult reserved a primal language for communication with the ancestral dead, Jamen. Pausanias revised the Narcissus legend, making it over into a scene of grieving misrecognition to get the motivation right for the image's riveting impact. When the boy sought his reflection in the water, the apparition of his lookalike dead sister stared back at him. In the primal scene of cargo cult, the black Melanesian sees in the water not his own reflection, but a white man at the ghostly remove and return of the dead. While the Pausanias revision realigns narcissistic disturbance with an origin in melancholia, the cargo cult followers attribute disturbance and retention span to the Europeans, blocking contact with the ancestors, the mourned dead. The Melanesians recognized that the white man's cargo, his techno-culture, turned on the gist of one single-minded innovation, live transmission. If you can telegraph across long distances in one instant of sending and receiving, then you can communicate with the long-distant, the dead. Cargo was the response to centuries of one-way discourse that the Melanesians had prayerfully addressed to their dead. But the Europeans routed it to their dead-letter office, refusing, like vengeful ghosts, to transmit the cargo to the rightful recipients. The Europeans had brought along the prospect of direct contact of the living with the dead and then taken it all away. At the same time, some Europeans appeared to be their recently departed, trickling through the barrier. Lattice gives a cross-section of the topography of this ambivalence. Indeed, villagers have been known to cry when seeing a new white man, for they believe they have recognized a lost relative. 
The villagers were suspicious at what they saw as Europeans who were not expressing genuine grief at funerals. They also were suspicious of the flowers planted around European houses. Villagers also saw white bodies as similar to corpses. Unmourning is the fluidum of the Europeans, who, like unquiet dead, haunt the Melanesians, intercepting the messages and waylaying the cargo sent from the afterlife. The return of the mourned dead, or, in Daniel Paul Schreber's lingo, the cleansed and tested souls, yields the nihilistic consequence that goes into Christianity's rap of resurrection not at the end of the world, but as the end of the world. The cult started setting dates for the arrival of the cargo-bearing ancestors. In preparation, the followers had to trash, waste, get rid of all their possessions. To be sure, they had to make room for the cargo, but they also needed a clearing for the oblivion and nothingness of successful mourning. All the above, I argued in Aberrations of Mourning, is the cargo cult in theory and plain text. Cargo cult tells it like it is. We are all the indigenous people of new technologies facing ghosts coming round the bend of the latest mediatic extension of our sensorium. We tend to see a cultural difference when animistic indigenous cultures turn the outward aspects of technology into props for worship and belief. To bring about live transmission, the Melanesians set up posts in imitation of telegraph poles, which they beat while the high priest, summoning from his belly his ventriloquation by the ancestors, communicated with the afterlife in Jaman. But consider the origin of modern spiritualism, our counterpart to the cargo cult in the midst of techno-innovations unto liveness across long distances. Telegraphy was on the rise, even and especially next door in Rochester, when the mediatic Fox sisters started picking up their own Morse code messages from ghosts knocking against the walls. Were they imitating something they didn't understand but wished to apply the way Western civilization had been and was still using electricity unwittingly? Or were they bending telegraphy to another kind of transmission that could not be located in the span of the technology's proper functioning? What made spiritualism modern was that communication with the other side was analogized with telecommunications media. These media were not used, however, instead disabused of function, they were turned into allegories, endopsychic perceptions, animism props, or alternate means of transmission hiding out in the recording. Between the input and output of the message sent by electric live transmission, there was immaterial mediation that bordered on the unknown and infinite. What could be bent to function for live communication among the living was open wide for immaterial contact of the other kind. Photographs of ghosts could be taken with the lens covered. The tape recording of noise between radio stations picked up spirit voices that upon incessant replay could be discerned. To reverse film, tape, and vinyl record means to undo function for the outside chance of an alternate message. 
The cargo cult's demand for live communication and contact with their dead was corollary to the larger demand for savvy, which of course refers to knowledge, but also addresses the interest and cathexis imbuing the whites. When cult followers dismissed their own pre-colonial culture and beliefs, bringing this world to an end to make room for the second coming of cargo, they were responding in the first place to the perceived lack of savvy in their own goods. Dorothy Billings documents the last upsurge of cargo cult, the spontaneous decision by Melanesians to vote for U.S. President Johnson. The 1964 election, which was to prepare the Melanesians for their own autonomous statehood, was just another episode in their schooling by Australians and Europeans. And the Melanesians continued to be frustrated with the missionary-style schooling, which withheld savvy. Many of men have savvy about English, and what have they done? They know English for nothing, that's all. The performance of a turn toward America was an answer to the question, who will show us about everything? Through a kind of free association with likely near synonyms, Billings seeks to identify the Melanesian understanding of savvy. When I was trying to make sure that I understood what Oliver meant when he said he believed in America, he said, just like, like, it's just like, like, that's all. While America can't be compelled to respond to or fulfill their wishes, just the same, Joseph, for one, wants to know, does America want to love our wish to them? Billings instructs that in the local culture, public pronouncements concerning one's wishes are often made, and they are considered final. It is expected that what a person wants will be treated as inviolable. Like is a big thing, they often said. Liking, wishing, being a daydream believer, all suggest that savvy translates youthful innovativeness and cathexis appeal, the cuteness going into the evolutionary trait of neoteny, the protracted juvenility that protects us like the future, according to some. Did the black Melanesians see in the African-American servicemen the prospect of equality, or did they recognize instead that the cool American demeanor, the adolescent energy among peers, the savvy imbuing the group, was emanating from the black men? What is distinctive about Americans, especially in their politics, is that they remain too inconsistent to qualify for closed-ranks European fascism. That Americans are inconsistent in their racism goes into the spread of the foreign body of savvy, which the Melanesians recognized. Oppression and inequality didn't contradict the pervasiveness of black savvy. There's another reason it was a good war. In the incubator of military service during World War II, being with it and being cool could be transmitted on the edge and badge of courage. Following Norman Mailer, it is possible to see the phenomenon of the American hipster as coming out of the war's metabolization of what he calls the white Negro. There is much that must be bracketed out in Mailer's 1957 essay before one can even read it. 
The symptom arc is given by the open disdain for psychoanalysis, although Mailer would appear to have been familiar only with its New York headquarters. Knowledge of D.W. Winnicott on the antisocial tendency would have honed his reading of psychopathy, making it less a provocation and more of an intervention. While for some of us it didn't hurt this much, the gist of Mailer's exposition cuts close to the truth. Since the Negro knows more about the ugliness and danger of life than the white, it is probable that if the Negro can win his equality, he will possess a potential superiority, a superiority so feared that the fear itself has become the underground drama of domestic politics. Like all conservative political fear, it is the fear of unforeseeable consequences, for the Negro's equality would tear a profound shift into the psychology, the sexuality, and the moral imagination of every white alive. The new white man's burden in our day is that savvy has either absconded or been cast off. Ferdinand Céline's plaint that the mixing of races always diminishes whiteness may be true on the palate, but whiteness today is a contact low contaminating all the non-black minority departments, from Jewishness and divergent orientation to being of color, brown gets around, but doesn't alleviate the malaise. Does the fracking for distinction across gender make it through this impasse? If so, it means that Michael Jackson and his double claim on race and gender should be reassessed as candidacy for sainthood. Most white Americans no longer retain the neoteny of youthful innovativeness. They grow older, lose the future, and become undifferentiated within the white population that is probably the world's most bland. In a Berlin subway car, the co-presence of white Europeans from different countries and cultures still suggests a degree of diversity. In the New World, however, the white immigrants excelled at assimilation unto homogenization. A few diacritical accent marks might denote an American region, but that's all. Hence, white resentment toward their fellow citizens of color who don't let go of the distinction of being hyphenated Americans. However, those once schooled in adolescence still know how to ad-lib their wish without the projective machinery of fulfillment. Having no script is no problem if they have a common understanding, which in the Trump cult is that they are bereft of savvy. Liberalism is an alien symbol, one that belongs to the Europeans and educated elites who learned how to function according to a European mindset. Brexit inspired them, and Trump's efforts seemed aimed only when they undermined Europe. In the absurd situation of the celebrated triumphs of the civil rights movement, they found it easy to make an absurd suggestion. The vote for making America great again offered a perspective on reality that pleased the cult followers, and the script grew. They found a way to play all the leading roles instead of the dull parts assigned them by the history of their assimilation and adjustment. In our time, the rallying of white Americans for white cathexis passed from the awkwardness of the Tea Party movement to the heil-saluting and heil-bringing Trump campaign. How soon we forgot 
that the last hurrahs of white savvy were made in Germany. Beginning with the sorrows of young Werther, the passion of white adolescence has been pitched and tossed in German jamming. One current landed in Southern California, see Beach Blanket Bingo, until the countertide of Helter Skelter's projected influence cut in. National Socialism channeled the main current of the lost cause of white savvy, pitching it against the melting plot. Just the same, Nazi ideologues had to adapt to a world of difference that already extended into the constitution of the Axis. So they acknowledged that there were other races that were equally pure, but not equally equal. It followed that it was possible to be Nazi and to accept former colonial subjects, non-whites, as honorary Aryans. While Aryan was the purest white, honorary made it another name for the teen legacy of Vauta. The contradiction that couldn't be metabolized goes into literary conceits like the Schwarzkommando and Thomas Pynchon's Gravity's Rainbow. Leni Riefenstahl wasn't just following her own agenda when she alternated in Olympia between the triumphs of black America and scenes of Aryan jocks getting hot together in the light of antiquity. Our focus gets blurred when we assume that every conquered populace fraternizes with the enemy and always to the same degree. German women fell for the African-American GIs because they recognized them crossing the finish line of the race that Riefenstahl projected between the agents of Black Savvy and the Germans bearing the torch of Greek primary narcissism. By then, the Siegfrieds were gone, but while the race was still being run, they were hot properties for the non-German women of Fortress Europe. Epilogue. By going black to the future, Octavia Butler's work could be adopted as Afrofuturism, a concept that took off by the late 1990s and hit blockbuster culture with Black Panther in 2018. In Afrofuturism, you can go to the future not to deny the past, but to change its reception, its recent passage. Her 1980 novel, Wild Seed, changes the traumatic history of slavery by redirecting its course in the service of a new psychic constitution. When the author as a young girl saw the science fiction movie from the UK, Devil Girl from Mars, she knew that proximity to science fiction, rather than only to fairy tale fantasy in which she was already dabbling, was the ticket. The border zone between fantasy and science fiction was as open to newcomers as the recycling bin and has been. It was other, and its open sesame was bolstered at that time in the United States by a new inclusion of all pupils and a newly fostered accessibility of science through the educational reforms and funding that the space race had brought about. The lead players in Wild Seed are shapeshifters, with the difference that Goro, an immaterial spirit, steals bodies and consumes the lives of the former occupants, while Anyanmu, a clairvoyant healer, can become or remember with her own pliable substance any life form with which she made contact. 
Goro believes in mastery and collects for his long-term breeding assignment candidates marked by special psychic talents. He picks up Anyanmu, who goes along with the master plan. A healer or witch for hundreds of years, she's compelled by the aloneness of the unique talents Goro collects to buffer them in the new communities she works to establish. In the time of individual development, each teletalent goes through a pubescent process of transition in which the paranormal ability is stabilized and can henceforth be used selectively or extend into madness, psychopathy, and self-destruction. The spirit or ghost inside Goro calculates that control of these extrasensory talents, who alone could see through the deception of his being immortal, ensures his continued survival. Those he doesn't select are killed off by the uncomprehending in any event. Then it becomes clear that he too enacts the teletransition in the process of body theft. Toward the end of the novel, he makes an experiment. He pulls back from the termination phase during his stranglehold on Anyanwu, and they relish instead ultimate contact, the fulfillment of transition. Thus the suicidality to which these near-immortals, like Anne Rice's vampires, were turning for respite from their longevity, their long goodbyes, can be stayed. The two African superheroes span in the centuries of their relationship the trek from eastern regional civilization, Goro means the East, to the New West and its new metaphysics of science fiction. The book chronicles the westward momentum from within the history of forced African migration across the sea. Goro and Anyuanyu meet in 17th century Africa, and the novel ends with Anyanwu's relocation with her community from Louisiana to California on the eve of the Civil War. Goro, whose mastery is uncompromised by the debasement of the history of slavery, simply finds the slave trade a waste from his perspective of breeding. The African contribution is the foundation body-based primary narcissism, which is not broken by machine relations. It is what the slave trade that comes from Africa carries forward, but not for the whites, who are atrophied by the degradations they perpetrate. Goro is always sizing up how much wear is left in his current body so he can select his next victim. Otherwise, his metabolism would decide for him and he would have to consume the one he's with. That, too, would be a waste. Goro cannot flex the special powers of the person he replaces, but he can pass them on when he uses the borrowed body to contribute to the breeding circle. Goro was just another killer as old as the slaughter trough of history, but before the prospect of a new world, he fully entered upon the melting pot experiment by setting his metabolism on choice and selection. It's not the European fit with survival, white man's burden, drawing Goro onward, but instead the prospect of a new species endowed with paranormal abilities and increased lifetime. 
Like Butler, visual artist Arthur Jaffa concluded, the space race, c'est moi. The artist's day job, Hollywood cameraman, brought him to the set of Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut, his work ending with the jolt of the director's death. Jaffa's work of mourning was framed within the eidetic memory he flashed back on, seeing 2001, A Space Odyssey, as a pre-adolescent black boy in Mississippi. Like Butler, he was interested in science fiction against the contemporary backdrop of the space race. Before seeing Kubrick's film, he had been following its progress on the pages of popular mechanics. Jaffa recalls, his primal viewing of Kubrick's SF movie. First, there is the absolute whiteness of the context, both figuratively and literally. All of the characters are Caucasian, and they are, in their demeanor, both archetypically and atavistically white. This is a whiteness that's sterile, creepy, and ultimately seductive. I'd guess Kubrick's background, a Bronx Jew, is relevant here. And second, there is the absence of both black people and or any apparent sign of blackness. This absence is misleading. Ultimately, I came to recognize the film's highly repressed and anxiety-ridden preoccupation with blackness. After the fact, Jaffa concluded that the obsession with suppression of blackness in Kubrick's science fiction movie was atypical of the genre only with respect to the elegance of its construction. At the film's conclusion, the Saturn station is a palatial introject of the French 18th century style befitting a luxury hotel chain but still bearing the date mark of the Enlightenment. The monolith on the moon transmits to one astronaut standing alone in this room while the allegory of the ages of man is performed. Out of one dying old man issues the star child, the afterlife in outer space. The ultimate fantasy jump cut in the history of cinema from the prehistoric weapon hurled against the monolith in Africa to the spaceship of the future traversing the black continent of outer space, sets off a series of evolutionary mutational leaps forward that culminates in the closing mystery sequence of rebirth. Jaffa. 2001's white star child is engendered by a black sentient body, subliminally and desperately positing the possibility of pure white being issuing forth from all-encompassing dark matter, a manifestation of white fear of genetic annihilation by the black other. In the setting of the Pax Americana, the sci-fi bogey of blackness is the ill-fitting and backfiring adaptation to Faustian Europe's white man's burden. And yet, outside the tired straits of repression, Jaffa's blackness is another word for savvy, which stirs the opposition in the cargo cult. Because of the adolescent turbulence, the growing pains going into the inheritance of the telegift and wild seed, 
we cannot end the space race at the finish line of reproduction. Like Schreber's Ray's inseminated inception as transgender and cyborg bringing forth a new survival species, the science fiction that Jaffa aligns with white racism in fact fulfills the ultimate teen wish to get past reproduction and death. We close, therefore, instead before the prospect of an inner outer space that's as old as the concise history of adolescence. The world of reproduction is not enough. <laughs>